So what's eating you? I haven't heard that phrase in years and it just struck me um, in the last couple of days. What's eating you? It's a phrase that refers to someone who seems to have everything had been taken care of for them and you ask them that. What's in the same sense of what's bugging you? What's annoying you? What's, what's on your mind? What's distracting you from staying focused on what you need to be doing? What's getting in the way of you doing what you're supposed to be doing right now? What's eating you? It's kind of negative sounding, isn't it? It's assuming that there's something in the way of what needs to be done properly. That you're the stumbling block. You're the one causing the problem. If you would just get over whatever it is, we could move forward now. But it can have positive connotations, as in today's lesson that we heard. And we'll get to that positive connotation in a moment, but... Think about what's eating you right now. This is it in its negative sense. And we heard, I think, what's eating you. What's eating me. What's eating all of us. Over in Romans 7, the good that I want to do is the very thing I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I find, are the very things that I do. To paraphrase Paul. Sin is eating us up. Sin has laid hold of us And instead of creating a zeal for the Lord, it creates a zeal for doing the wrong things. We like to do the wrong things in and of ourselves. We pursue the wrong and avoid the true good. And when we do do the good, we do it with sinful intentions. We desire to do it to build ourselves up, to make ourselves look better. Or we do it out of sheer fear of what someone else might say about it. So what's eating you today? We heard here what was eating Jesus. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. One commentator kept referring to that as zeal for your house will eat me. And talked about how Jesus was eaten up with zeal, eaten up with love and affection and desire for the honor of God's house. And that's where we are right now, that God desires honor for His house. And Jesus desires honor for His house. And that desire for that honor will cause a change in all of reality that we can never understand fully this side of the eschaton. That the temple was there and it was the most holy place in this world and yet Jesus cleansed it. Jesus drove out people from it because zeal for Yahweh's house was eating Him up. And because zeal has eaten him up, that very zeal will consume us. But his zeal for the house of the Lord will not destroy us, but will purify us as gold has been purified. And the first thing that we see in our passage here in the gospel that I want us to focus on is the spread of holiness. You see, the temple was the center of all holiness, the geographic center in this world with the Holy holy of Holies being the very center of that holiness. And so to gather at the temple was to gather and draw near to God's holiness. From the Holy of Holies, you then moved forward to the holy place where the priest would do some work, where the bread of the presence was, where the lampstands were. From there was the court of the priest where the sacrifices were, where the altar was set up. 
and they would make the sacrifices there. From there was the court of Israel where the Israelite men could gather, and then the court of the women where the women of Israel could gather. Then after that was the court of the Gentiles where anyone could gather near the house of the Lord. Anyone could come into that place no matter their condition, whether they were unclean or whether they were a foreigner, because sometimes some physical conditions would render you unclean. If you were disabled in some way, you could not enter any closer than the court of the Gentiles because you were rendered unclean by your disability. And it is in that court of the Gentiles that our story takes place today. That court is where these money changers were set up. That court is where these sellers of oxen and sheep and doves and pigeons were set up. They were set up in the most outer boundaries of the temple yard, of the temple court, of the temple mount. And they gathered there to sell these sheep and these oxen, these pigeons and these doves, and to exchange money. But why? Why were they doing that? Well, what's funny is this wasn't an abnormal occurrence at the temple. This was fairly common practice on feast days and the coming up of festival days when pilgrims from all around Israel, from all around the world, would begin streaming into Jerusalem. Back in the day, we already, well, today we already know how hard it is to pack up stuff and bring it with you on a trip, right? Imagine back then traveling a couple of hundred miles on foot or on a donkey trying to bring a lamb with you trying to bring an oxen or a sheep with you and keeping it in the kind of pristine, pure condition that the law required it to be for sacrifice. And so in recognition of the fact that people were coming from so far away, these people actually set up to sell them pure animals, good animals, righteous animals that could be used in the sacrifices of the temple because the pilgrims couldn't bring them with them. They couldn't bring them from hundreds of miles away and have them be in the right condition. And so instead of bringing animals, these people would bring money with them. They would bring the money of whatever province they were a part of. And oftentimes that money would be improper to use in the city of Jerusalem. And even more so, improper to use at the temple for purchasing things or for paying the annual half-shekel tax that they had to pay. Because often that money would have images on it. Would have images of whoever the leader of that province was or at this point... The Roman emperor would be imprinted on the coins that they would bring. And so they would have to have money changers to change it out for money that they could use at the temple. To break it down into smaller pieces of gold. To break it down into smaller coins. Just like when we travel today. Or well, now we have credit cards, we don't do this. But maybe 20 years ago you would take big traveler's checks with you. And then you would get to where you're going and maybe cash one at a time to get smaller amounts of money to go spend. That's what this is. They'd bring large coins and then they'd convert it down to smaller units. And so these money changers and these sellers were not out of place necessarily in the temple. It was something that had sprung up to aid the worshipers. But it had gotten out of control apparently. All of the sheep and the oxen and the pigeons, all this noise from this livestock, all these money changers sitting around and changing money had turned the core of the Gentiles into a wild place, a place that could no longer be a place of worship, a place that could no longer be a place where Gentiles, the people who were not part of the covenant, could come, that they could come and be God-fearers and worship the Lord and pray to Him and learn about Him from the various scribes who would be there in the court of the Gentiles to teach people. But because of all these traitors, that couldn't be done. Because of all these traitors, 
It was no longer a place of contemplation, a place where you could focus on the Lord. It had become and turned into a marketplace that was unholy because of the noise and the competition going on there. And thus, Jesus enters in there to these temple grounds and He makes a a whip of cords and He drives them out. He drives out the sheep and the oxen with all the people with them. He flips the money changers' tables and He scatters their coins. And He says to those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my Father's house a house of trade. Do not make my Father's house a place of trade. Something about this passage jumps out at me and that it's an allusion to Zechariah 14, 20, and 21. There in that passage, Zechariah is prophesying about the day of the Lord. He's prophesying about how the bells on the horses would be engraved and say, Holy is the Lord, or Holy to the Lord, which was a phrase that was inscribed on the headband that the high priest would wear. It also prophesies that the average pots that you would use in your house would be as holy as the vessels that were used in the temple to serve the Lord. And then there, it then goes on to say that there will no longer be a traitor, a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So with the spread of holiness that I'm talking about here is that somehow, some way on the day of the Lord, the holiness of God will spread out across the whole creation. So much so that the bells, the little jingling bells that horses would wear on their bridles would be inscribed with the phrase, holy is the Lord, that it would be set apart in holiness, that our average everyday pots that we use in our homes would be as holy in their use as they would be in the temple, that you could take those pots out of your house and go to the temple and let the priest use them and they would not need to do anything to purify them. They would be ready to go in that day. And that on that day, there would no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord. Jesus, in this action of purifying the temple at the beginning of His ministry, is an act of Him fulfilling prophecy. He's driving out those traitors to declare that this is the day of the Lord that Zechariah prophesied. It's a day that will bring with it holiness to the ends of the earth somehow, some way. From the least to the greatest, holiness is given to all. There's an equality of holiness to be received in the coming of the Lord that is Jesus Himself. We have to fully appreciate that that holiness though. Like I was saying before, as I described the temple grounds from the holiest place that is the Holy of Holies to the holy place, to the court of the priest, to the court of Israel, to the court of women, to the court of the Gentiles, that each of those areas are a degree of holiness that is slightly less than the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. That was the most holy place in all of creation. It was the footstool where God's feet, so to speak, rested. But that meant that His presence was truly there for His people. And that somehow in Jesus' act here in the temple, driving out these traitors, He is declaring that the holiness of God is to be spreading across the earth. Because that's the prophecy He's fulfilling. That Zechariah is saying that holiness is going to go across all of creation. And it's a beautiful thing that there can be this degree of holiness that suddenly becomes equal across all places, across all times, across all peoples. That there can be holiness for those no matter what. 
That holiness will pervade all places because that's what Yahweh desires. He desires to bring His holiness out to all. Which, of course, leads to my second point. Jesus' zeal for the holiness of God. In His doing this action, performing this action in the temple, driving out these money changers and these sellers and these traders, His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Again, a reference to the Old Testament, a reference to the book of Psalms where David is writing about how he has been abandoned by everyone, how he is being persecuted, how he has been cut off from all that he cares for. And why? Because zeal for the house of the Lord has consumed him, has eaten him up, that he's been consumed, consumed by zeal for Yahweh. Now that word zeal is an interesting word because we don't really use it this day. We don't really talk about being zealous for something very often. We talk about enjoying things. We talk about loving things, but we don't talk about being zealous for them. But the word in Hebrew also means jealous. Like we heard over in the Ten Commandments that the Lord is a jealous God. What does that mean exactly? What does it mean to have zeal or jealousy in this sense? It's not the way that we colloquially use jealousy. We speak of being jealous of someone, which means we're envious of them. We look at them and see if they have something that we want, and so we hate them and we despise them ultimately for it because we think we deserve it more. Or we look at someone who we say, hey, you should be paying attention to me, and we become jealous of them and their freedom to not pay attention to us. That's the negative side of jealousy that is ultimately envy and coveting someone's freedom and despising them for it. Not loving them anymore, but hating them. Here, here, zeal or jealousy is for something. It's not against something. It's funny how prepositions work in that regard. To say you're jealous of someone is to say that you are against them. But to say that you are jealous for something is to be that you are for that thing. You desire that thing in its proper capacity and you want it to be built up. And here, Jesus is consumed with zeal for the house of the Lord. He is consumed with that positive side. He has a zeal for holiness that we cannot fully grasp. And He has that zeal because He is God Himself. He comes into the temple and kicks out the blasphemers, these money changers, and these traitors who are making a mockery ultimately, whose noise and whose competition between each other have become a distraction and thus damaged the inherent holiness of that part of the temple. They've driven away the people who have come to pray, those Gentiles who can never draw near perfectly to God because they are not part of the covenant. And so zeal for the Yahweh's house has consumed Jesus. He is being eaten by that zeal. And it's coming out in a positive way that He desires to purify the house of the Lord, to purify all things. And when He purifies something, He sets it apart. He creates holiness in that place once more. And so for Him to drive out these money changers and these traitors is to reestablish the holiness of the court of the Gentiles, that this is supposed to be a holy place right now. And He has a zeal for making God's holiness spread out. God's separateness, His difference from all things. But it's a holiness that we cannot directly encounter. Because just as zeal was consuming Jesus in a good way, 
The holiness of God would consume us in a bad way when we come in direct contact with it. Think about the Ten Commandments again. God came down on that mountain as and clouds and lightning and thunder and a storm brewed up fire and rushing wind up upon the top of that mountain and the people were scared out of their minds because God's holiness was being revealed because there was no one between them and God. And so they backed away. They ultimately desired for Moses to be their mediator, to be the intermediary between them and God, to go up and hear the words of God and bring it back because they could not handle it in and of themselves. Yes, they heard the Ten Commandments and that was enough. Those ten words from the Lord to scare them witless because of the sheer holiness of who God is in Himself. And that is the holiness that Jesus has zeal for. That is the holiness that He is jealous for. That is the holiness that He is consumed with in purifying His temple. And it's a holiness that is shocking to us. It's a holiness that we have to respond to. It's a holiness we have to recognize. Because Jesus is jealous for that holiness. And how do we respond to it? Do we hate and despise that holiness? Do we say that God is wrong to be holy in Himself? Do we say that God is wrong to exact and pour forth His holiness upon this creation? In and of ourselves, I think we would say that. Because we know that God's holiness would bring judgment against us. That His holiness being poured out upon us would cause to spring forth the recognition that we do not love God as we are supposed to. That God has created humanity to respond to Him, to be in loving relation to Him. And that we in and of ourselves are not those kinds of people. That Israel herself was never that kind of people. After all, they were kicked out of the land and exiled for their continual disobedience and idolatry. And are we any better than Israel? No, we're not. We are utterly the same as Israel in regard to the condition of our hearts. That even when we know the thing that we're supposed to do, we do the very thing we're not supposed to do. But there is a part of us that is the sinful side of us, as Paul points out, that it is a flesh in him that is that has been sold to sin, and that's the condition we are all in. And that was the beauty of that first commandment, of the first word in that chapter 20. The first verse, I should say, not quite the first commandment, where it says, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Ten Commandments are set in the context of the redemption that the Lord has given to His people. And thus, we today are set in a context of redemption because we know what Jesus has done. We look back on what Jesus has done and that brings us to the last part of our Gospel lesson. That is, Jesus has come to us. He has come and redeemed us that we discover that the pervasiveness of holiness. We discover how this holiness that Zechariah talked about spreading across the earth, purifying even horses' bells and the pots and pans we use in our homes. How does that holiness become in all places? How does it pervade all of reality? It's because Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. In three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, Jesus says. And I will raise it up. Jesus, of course, is talking about Himself. The Jews misunderstood. 
They're like, well, th th this building's taking us 46 years to build up like this, and you'll rebuild it in three days? That statement from Jesus echoes throughout the rest of his ministry. So much so that in three years after this encounter with the Jews, they're still talking about it. They accuse him of saying he said he would destroy the temple itself and rebuild it in three days. Listen to this blasphemer. But yet, Jesus makes a big point here that he is the true temple. And that is why holiness can be everywhere, why holiness can spread out everywhere. Because Jesus is the true temple who is destroyed but yet raised back up. Jesus' death is the fulfillment of this statement of destroy this temple. And His resurrection is the fulfillment of in three days I will raise it up. And in their day, as soon as they hear something about the temple being destroyed, these Jews and these scribes immediately would think back to the temple being destroyed in 586. All those years ago, the temple really was destroyed by the Babylonians and it took years and years to rebuild it once they were returned to their land. And then Herod the Great started building on the temple and adding on to it such that his son was still working on it and that it wouldn't be completed until the mid-60s and then it was destroyed within just a couple of years after it being completed. That temple ceased to be. And the first temple was destroyed because of the sins of the people. The sins of the people led to God destroying the very temple that represented His presence. And that is what Jesus is saying here, is that you will destroy this temple. My temple will receive the punishment God's people deserve. Just as the original temple was destroyed on account of the people's sins. It couldn't atone for anything, for it was a mere building. But yet Jesus, being God Himself, can atone and take away those very sins that we deserve punishment for, that we deserve to be turned away from God for. Because Jesus is the true temple, He receives our punishment and is raised back to life to undo what sin has done to us and to cause holiness to spring forth in all directions from Him. That just as holiness spread out from the holiest place, the holy of holies, Jesus is now the center of holiness. The temple was a geographic center for that holiness, and thus you had to go to the temple to come into contact with God's holiness proper in that way. But Jesus becoming the true temple is now the center of God's presence, the center of His holiness, the center of why holiness now spreads throughout everywhere. For Jesus is united to each and every one of us now. He is connected to us. He has been bound to us through baptism and faith, such that as He comes and unites Himself to us, he makes us as holy as He is holy. His zeal that has consumed Him for the house of God comes and purifies us and makes us set apart and holy as He is holy. For He is the true temple and thus is the most holy thing in all of creation now. Jesus in His human body is the most holy place in all of creation and He is united to you. He is united to me. And His zeal that consumes Him and desires perfect purity consumes us in a good way. It consumes us that we are now purified, that we are now made new creations, that we are now made perfectly holy as Jesus Himself is holy. Those degrees of holiness radiating out from the Holy of Holies no longer applies, for Jesus is the center of that holiness. And it flows out from Him perfectly because He is in union with His people and in 
through His act of resurrection has renewed all things in Himself. And thus holiness will spread abroad across all things when He returns. And all things will be made perfectly new and there will be an equality of holiness in all things. For Jesus is the place that it radiates from. And as all things come into contact with Him, they will be purified. They will be called to new life. For God is consumed with bringing new life. God is consumed with bringing His holiness to us. And thus, by bringing His holiness, bringing His saving presence, He has become consumed with saving us and making us as He is, holy and set apart in purity. And He calls us to receive that. He calls us to receive and to recognize that He is a true and good God, that He is a merciful God who is purifying and desires to change us. And we are called to receive what He does and to walk forth in that newness of life, to go forth in newness in everything that we do. And how do we go forth in newness? Well, we heard about it in Exodus 20. You shall love the Lord your God. I am the one true God. You shall make no images of anything else to worship or bow down to. You shall not take my name in vain. You shall not make for yourself any carved image. You shall not forget the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. That is how we walk forth in holiness after God's change. We see this law and recognize that on one hand it convicts and condemns us because in and of ourselves we have broken every one of those commandments a billion times over in our lives. Each moment that we breathe we are coveting or we are worshiping an idol if we're not careful. And yet, they are the path that reveal to us what God desires of us. He desires us to be pure, and so He gives us a roadmap, so to speak, of walking in the purity He has given to us. He has given us a map to understand and to be changed, to understand and to walk. Just as Psalm 19 speaks and praises the law that it's something that can actually revive the soul. It's the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The Ten Commandments don't only condemn us, but they reveal to us the path that God desires His people to be on. That as He has been consumed with zeal for His own house, His people, the body of Christ, He gives us a path to remain in that holiness. And when we break away from that holiness to confess our sins to confess and receive forgiveness to be changed once more back into the holy people of God. And that is what the Ten Commandments do for us today. They reveal our sin so that we can confess it. They tell us more than the summary. The summary is beautiful. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your being and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's a perfect summary of the law and yet we bend it And we warp it and change what it means because we don't understand what it's summarizing. You have to go back to the Ten Commandments to see what that summary is teaching us. It's teaching us how to apply those Ten Commandments in the moments of our lives. And so we are called into obedience toward those commandments. But we are called because Jesus has changed us. The zeal that consumes Him has consumed us and changed us. 
and made us into new creations, made us into new people. His holiness pervades us now because He is the true temple. He is the true temple that has been consumed with zeal for the Lord and thus is consumed with zeal for us and brings that zeal to bear upon us to make us holy and to send us out with that same zeal within, to send us out with a desire to follow after Him, with a desire to be holy, with a desire to bring that holiness to bear on all. But to bring that holiness to bear in a positive way, we go out with the gospel. We go out in the joy of the Lord. We go out sharing that God is forgiving us of all of our sins and we carry God's saving presence with us and in us because Jesus is with us and in us, purifying and making us part of Himself and being the temple of God. That Jesus is the true temple and makes His people the true temple. Jesus is the center of God's holiness and thus makes His people holy. Zeal for the holiness of the Lord has consumed Jesus and it has consumed us and made us new this day. And so let us go forth and may we go forth in the joy of knowing that we have been consumed by zeal. We've been consumed and eaten alive by Jesus' zeal for our holiness and made new and made right and made perfect in the eyes of the Father by Jesus Himself. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.